Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Discord and Snapface and all the platforms. Uh, this is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Um, follow us on Twitter at, at @clergylay, and join our Facebook discussion group. And if you have any trouble joining our Facebook discussion groups, please DM Christopher or me. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother Chris, a priest. Uh, but even more importantly than Christopher and I, today it is my great pleasure to introduce a special guest, Father Andrew DeFusco. Andrew, is a, Andrew received his undergraduate degree from Grove City College, go Wolverines. His theological training from Fuller Seminary in California, was rector for many years of the beautiful St. Peter's Anglican Church in Butler, Pennsylvania, and two years ago was installed as rector of Jonah's Call Church in Pittsburgh. Andrew is a subtle philosopher and theologian. He sports the finest set of sideburns seen this side of the Victorians, is one of the better preachers you'll ever hear, has been known to quote John Henry Newman from memory, knows the 39 articles better than you, brings some great Italian swagger to Anglicanism, is a fantastic European travel companion, and makes the ladies swoon as he swans about town in his cassock and Canterbury cap. Andrew! Welcome to Haber Bros. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm great. I've never been more, more flattered. That is the most bloated introduction I've ever had. So thank you. <laughs> very kind. I mean almost all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so fun to hear, be here with you all. Andrew, yeah. uh, I'd love if you'd spend a few minutes just introducing yourself to the listeners. Uh, so Kirk shared how you um, are a Western Pennsylvanian um, and that you are an Anglican priest. Uh, and before the show, we visited a little bit about how uh, in um, kind of at the end of middle school, uh, your family, it's, it's funny, like we talk about our, our, our church heritage and, and much of that is not up to us. It's where our family takes us um, when we were young. But um, the church that they took you to following um, some time in, in the Presbyterian church and even in, in Roman Catholic circles um, was to an, an Anglican church uh, in, in Pittsburgh, a quite large one. Um, uh, you went to Grove City where there, there is no real um, kind of, at the time you were there at least, there was no Anglican church. Um, but, uh, but then you, you left uh, very early on, you, you must have felt um, the, the call to, uh, to ordained ministry. And uh, you went off to Fuller Seminary in California, an evangelical seminary. And uh, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about... 
not your evolution theologically, but just, but just like your heritage, where, where you were and, and where you, where you find yourself today. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. All that is, is accurate. Um, so it's, yeah, born into the Presbyterian church and baptized as an infant in that world, um, but sent to a Roman Catholic grade school at the, at the Pittsburgh Roman Catholic cathedral. And they had a grade school at the time. Um, and then after that was transferred to a very reformed, uh, very conservative reformed Presbyterian school for later middle school and high school. Um, and then, yeah, at some point, kind of sixth grade-ish, wound up at the, the local parish Episcopalian, now Anglican church um, of, my, of my kind of urban setting in the city. And that felt like home to me. So yeah, I, I don't know. It was probably like many, many folks experience so kind of the Anglican world felt like a homecoming somewhere in my experience, at least this, this kind of happy place to land after a Roman Catholic liturgical surroundings and kind of being in that world surrounded by nuns and um, all of that in school. And then uh, being very happily indoctrinated by the, the reform circles that I was then in, in middle school and high school, sitting in, in church at the, at the Anglican church it was called church of the Ascension is called church of the Ascension. Um, reading the 39 articles, you know, in ninth grade or whatever it was, thinking like, yeah, this is what I was taught. Seems a little more generous, maybe. Um, and also they, they worship in the way that, that I connect with most deeply. And so, yeah, kind of from then on, I mean, I would count myself sort of as a, a classical Anglican. I know most Anglicans mean something slightly different by that, if, if you're asking them. But um, yeah, that's, that's my heritage. And I identify fully with that at this point as a as a Christian with English spirit, English spiritual heritage. Yeah. And for those of our listeners who have, have kind of been along for the ride uh, and uh, listened while not necessarily having a, a, a solid grasp of, of the, everything that we talk about uh, we, the, the Anglican tradition, uh, the tradition that all three of us are a part of um, is, is often called the via media kind of the middle way in the reformation where um the, the Catholics had their own counter-reformation and um, that was kind of solidified their position at, at the Council of Trent. Um, uh, and, and in, in the world, uh, we talk about a lot about capital R reformed folks um, who have these really long systematic theologies and um, like uh, kind of the brainiacs on, on, on this side of the reformation um, really, really find themselves attracted to that because um like the the intellectuals just love this system the systematic um approach to theology that that the the capital r reformed offer um and so when they read thing um doctrinal statements like the 39 articles which are very very um i want to use the word conservative but but that's kind of a hard word in in, in these days um cautious. i mean conservative in and very cautious just yeah. kind of rejecting kind of things seen as uh newer innovations in in the western church um and uh it, it's it, but it did not go nearly far enough for many in the reformed world and and so that's kind of what andrew's referring to here is that he's looking at these 39 articles and he's like oh these are these are kind of kind of wimpy. Um, you know, they could go certainly <laughs> further. I'm putting words in his mouth, but um, as as someone and for me, of, that was that was a positive thing that they were okay, minimalist. Yeah. yeah. In the sense that um, they weren't overbearingly demanding that you subscribe to to the minutia of what these things, but but kind of in a minimalist way said these things are non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. um, but kind of how exactly that's interpreted, or the specific minutia of how that would be teased out, are left open for 
theologians to to play with, which for me as a yeah. theologian, like I enjoy that space to play. One one might call it a generous orthodoxy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. Andrew, we had a guest on last week who, um, and interestingly, Andrew uh, talked about many people in his tradition really struggled with the um, severity and strictness of of kind of reform standards, especially um, Westminster, that they would look at, at the specificity um, in the Westminster standards. And they're like, I can't go, I can't agree with hundred percent of this. Um, and me, and you know, maybe we don't need to. And what, but what they did is they threw the baby out with the bathwater and said, you know, no creeds, no. Um, but, but where we find ourselves is like, well, we can't, um, well, while these may be comprehensive statements of faith, um, we don't feel kind of backed into a corner where we have to affirm 100% of this. We could see truth there, certainly, um, but but uh, there's a generous orthodoxy in, in the middle. Well, I, I think I would say this. I mean, generous, generous is often the word, Christopher, that I've used uh, to describe the articles. They, um, they're, they're sort of a, a big tent. I think they're intentionally trying to provide a big tent to keep all parties together in England, and it, and it really did work for 100 years. Um, uh, un until during the Civil War, the Roundheads kind of smashed the whole project. Uh, but um, I, uh, I've been grateful for for that generosity. Um, I think in some ways it 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 set uh, it it, it um, kind of set the DNA for Anglicanism that, that there are so many different church churchmanships within Anglicanism. So that from the outside looking in, um, for many Protestants who look at Anglicanism, it, it it's hard for them to understand why it's not just Catholic. Right, and for many mm -hmm. Catholics yeah. looking at Anglicanism, it, it just looks like Calvinists in drag. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, and I was just going to say I didn't really answer Christopher's question either. Sorry, just about my own background. My my kind of vocational history has been in that that trajectory as well. So churchmanship, I think, is a little bit of what we're what we're hoping to talk about today. And my churchmanship, or just sort of the kind of Christian you are, your your spirituality um, has, has reflected some of that back and forth for me. So I was very much kind of a, on the higher, but meaning more, more Catholic looking end of things in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, both growing up and then through college was sort of uh, in, that, in that world where I would resonate with more of the kind of Roman Catholic history uh, of the church and et cetera, um, but went to a very evangelical Anglican church during college. Uh, and then, so I was kind of in that higher place and then went to Fuller Seminary on purpose um, because it's a, it's a very evangelical place. There are very few Anglicans or Episcopalians around. Um, it's a largely Presbyterian and, and kind of free church place. But because I knew I was already pretty, pretty deeply rooted in the, the kind of higher Anglican tradition and wanted to spend these years of theological formation in as diverse a place as possible, knowing that eventually I'd be coming back to a, a pretty... Um, pretty static Anglican world. Um, and then the job that I took immediately after being in a low evangelical seminary for three or four years was at a church in Butler. And I was there for about nine years, St. Peter's, um, which allowed me to be basically as, as high or kind of Anglo Catholic as I wanted to be. Uh, and, and that was a kind of very happy place for me. I, I'm, I'm not kind of an extremist by any means. So probably what I mean by that is would, would look very tame compared to maybe some of what you would experience in Texas or other especially Anglo-Catholic places, but it was, yeah, very high liturgical expression of those things, very happy uh, to hold those, those views theologically. And then most recently, two years ago, took a job at a church called Jonas Call, which is a lovely place that I have loved being 
um, and fits me really well uh, artistically and, and culturally, but is a much lower kind of more evangelical looking place. And so uh, although my spirituality and theology have not changed at all, the expression of that um, mm. liturgically and the way that looks kind of on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of formality versus informality, those sorts of what I would consider more peripheral things um, look much lower now or much more casual than they did for me in the previous nine years. So I've been kind of back and forth all over. I think the core of what I believe has not changed in the midst of that, but I'm pretty flexible in terms of expression. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think, uh, I'm not sure what, what our listeners who aren't Anglican think of us. Like, like Kirk said, I, th I think, um, for, for the lower church among us, I think it seemed they, they probably would have a hard time picturing what happens at Jonah's call. Like it would, it would not look the way they think it would look. They would picture smells and bells and, and pipe organ. And um, uh, whereas I would imagine you have a whole uh, mix of music, um, contemporary and, and, and um, traditional. Uh, and uh, just, uh, I, th I think it would look uh, uh, quite different. Um, I, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about, so though it may look different, um, what's happening uh, kind of in, as you uh, consecrate Holy Communion, um, like that, that can look ma uh, many different ways. I wonder if you'd explore that just a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, so globally, it would look very different ways in kind of rural Kenya. It looks very different from how it does in, you know, El Paso or New York City or wherever. Um, yeah, for, for us, I mean, so it's an interesting thing, especially when you, when you pair a priest with a, with a local parish church. Um, because they bring their own preferences and so they learn from each other and try to be similarly kind of we were using the word generous before generous with with each other um so for me for instance i i'm i'm succeeding the founding pastor the founding rector of this church uh, and for me a piece of worship that's that's very uh, important is kind of vestments so the the pastor before me did not wear any liturgical vestments he wore collar but no um, no vestments during worship, and and I began that practice at Jonah's Call, which is a very big stretch for them. Many of these folks are coming from non-Anglican backgrounds, and if they are coming from the Anglican background, they're coming from a, a kind of low, very Protestant uh, stream of it. So, you know, that was important to me, and I explained why and kind of the history of it and, um, you know, all of that, uh, whereas, um, you know, vice versa, some of the stuff that that I would have been used to or whatever, that's just not part of their culture, I'm happy to, to give up. Um, but like you said, what, what you're doing when you pray, and one of the beautiful things about having a prayer book is that the core of mm -hmm. what you're praying doesn't change from, from church to church. And so that's what you appeal to, that's what shapes your worship, regardless yeah. of the, yeah, the surroundings. Could, could I ask you what vestments you do wear? <laughs> yeah, so at Jonas Call, I wear cassock, surplice, and stole which is the classic kind of Anglican thing since the Reformation. Yeah. When you watch the Vicar on BBC, it yeah. looks oh, like Oh, there you go. Yeah, exactly. That would still be yeah, the default thing that they wear <laughs> yeah. in the, in the yeah. Church of England. Yeah. At, in, at St. Peter's and Butler, I wore the more full kind of Roman vestments. So um, alb and chasuble and maniple and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. If, well, uh, if yeah. listeners go to Jonas Call website, um, they will, if they scroll down just a little bit, they will see... Um, a picture of you resplendently robed <laughs> in said cassock, surplice, and stole preaching. Um, yeah, and we'll uh, we'll share that uh, that website in the in the, the show notes as well. 
Um, uh, Andrew, thank you for um, for kind of that thorough introduction. Um, that uh, many of these things may be only interesting to me, but I hope that it's it's edifying for our listeners. Kirk, you were saying. I, I, I no longer remember. It can't okay. <laughs> it can't have been that important. Well, I think we're going to follow up. I think on just some of these things uh, uh, in the theology segment, just yes. as as far as like um, you know. Andrew would not identify, self-identify as an Anglo-Catholic, but he would say he's a Tractarian. We've talked about these things in, in um, past episodes, but uh, we're going we're gonna to tackle these a little bit in the theology segment. Uh, Kirk, Kirk, how are you? Oh, thank you for asking, Christopher. This is, um, I'm thinking and hemming and hawing about into what detail to go as I <laughs> a- answer this question. And I'm going to err on the side of being brief and, and short on details. I am probably mis- be good, Kirk. That's, that's I am miserable. Good. I am miserable. Um, and I'm muddling through. Uh, I Last Tuesday, so nine days ago, I had no, yes. I had a hernia surgery, um, the second in 15 months. Um, I, I went over this in previous shows, so I will not bore you, dear listener, with all this. Um, but I, on Saturday, uh, woke up and, and had noticed increased itch, itching around the incisions in my abdomen. It's lapros- laparoscopic surgery, so there are three incisions. Um, but, but, but something else was happening. And uh, it got worse on Saturday and worse on Sunday. And I was preaching on Sunday, and I was sort of like pawing at myself under the surplus, which, which probably looked weird. I hope it wasn't distracting. <laughs> uh, and uh, I could not sleep Sunday night. And I went to the, the uh, convenient care on Monday morning. And it turns out I had an allergic reaction, a severe contact dermatitis to the alcohol prep. Um, so if you have ever undergone surgery or you know anything about how they do alcohol prep, they don't just do it a little bit. They do it like, all over the abdomen. Like my entire bodily core is lit up um, like a Christmas tree. And uh, Christopher, your wife is so wonderful. She is a, she is a doctorate in pharmacy. She's a, a pharmacist for a hospital in Sioux Falls. And she kind of helped me navigate through kind of some of the issues I was having with, with healthcare. But I'm convinced I was underdosed in prednisone in, in dealing with it. And uh, I went back, and they still didn't want to crank up the um, the steroids. But, so but they just, gave you pres- they gave you prescription Zyrtec, right? Oh, yes, yeah. This is Which, such an old man yeah. conversation. I feel like this we, is a different like, different kind of show than I realized. Yeah. <laughs> well, Andrew, you're <laughs> this not is like on not, the porch at, at the, the the village in uh, in Florida or something like. Andrew, that. you have oh. not you have not heard the best part of of when like he made this oatmeal poultice and spread it out like <laughs> slathered what looks like vomit all over his abdomen. Oh, oh boy. Did you appreciate that picture? <laughs> oh, it's a great, great picture. Probably yeah, so, not one we're going to share in the Facebook group, though. So, listener, pray, pray for me. I am, like, profoundly uncomfortable, and I feel like the medical care that I've received has been dismissive and slapdash. Um, not so much in the individual nurses and doctors that I've encountered, but just kind of getting caught, ground up in the bureaucracy and the system, kind of being passed off by three different nodes within the system. Um, so that's, that's, a, I promised I would be short and then I wasn't. So how are you? How, you okay, Christopher? We're doing all right. Yeah. Um, got a little change up. Uh, so last Friday, of course, was, was Meg's birthday and we had a great yes! party on Friday night, uh, outdoor distanced party, but it, it was, it couldn't have gone better. Uh, I, we found a little ground hornet nest and I had to 
contact Kirk about that because I know the, he's had issues with that in his yard, but yes. he got that taken care of before we had guests over. In my yard and in your yard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we we had uh, two people who came in contact with people who had COVID. Um, so we asked them not to come on Friday night, but they came on Sunday night, uh, found out that they tested negative. Um, so it was much ado about nothing, but it, we still got two different parties. Um, and then uh, yesterday Meg woke up with like, she woke up and she was just like, I can't smell. Dun, dun, dun. I can't smell. And, uh, COVID-19 is, is, is a very, very strange illness um, with, uh, that manifests itself in very different ways. Some people you know, die from it. Some people are on ventilators. Um, and when you look at the, the list of symptoms, it's, it's pretty interesting. The, yeah. the kind of vague variety, like it, it sounds a lot like the flu. Um, and uh, until you actually get tested, it's, it's hard to tell if it's COVID or if it's flu or just something else but the but the one thing that we've noticed is that uh well, we and we also have many asymptomatic uh people who test positive so they have it no symptoms um and and the the, the one thing that kind of stands out is that uh there are a number of people where that was their only symptom is yeah. loss of of smell. that's what spooked and that's what spooked me too yeah and so uh she went and got tested and test came back today negative now, I wouldn't say that this is over. We'll kind of watch your symptoms because uh, if, if you test too early, um, you can get a false negative. In mm -hmm. fact, almost 70% are false negatives. Um, so if we're going to kind of watch your symptoms, uh, we're not out of the woods yet, but uh, we're kind of, kind of watching that right now. So that's, that's uh, the update uh, here from Sioux Falls. <laughs> but that is, that is happy news, and we'll continue to pray for her. Thank you. Um, you. You know that I was spooked by my loss of smell and that sent yeah. me down a whole rabbit hole as well. Well, so. it's, it, it's not just like, oh, I'm spooked because I lost my smell. It's, it's um, knowing that, that there's a kind of a wide range of how this hits people. And right. so knowing that we, we might have it in our household, we just want to be careful in how, uh, you know, she works at a hospital. So <laughs> certainly she's not going to go to work until we know for certain that, that she's not going to infect many, many people. So... Yeah. Gentlemen, shall we move on to the gospel? Let's move on to the gospel. This week's gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, so here we are in, in Matthew chapter 16. We've been walking through Matthew uh, ever since this podcast started for all, all these episodes. And if we were in the book of Mark, this would represent kind of the apex, kind of the peak. Everything that Mark has been doing has been leading up to this confession of faith. And it's not quite the, the, the apex uh, that it is in, in the book of Mark uh, here in Matthew. Uh, but this is quite a high point and, and a turn, certainly in the book. Um, that we are seeing Jesus' rejection um, by Israel, by, by both um, some of the people, but certainly the religious establishment. And he's finding faith in interesting places. In Matthew 8, he finds faith in, in the Roman centurion. And then last week, he finds faith uh, outside of Israel um, with this, uh, what Matthew calls the Canaanite woman, um, that she gets it in a way um, that, that the, the, the people who have heard the prophecies should have gotten it and don't. And, and so, uh, again, just like last week, Jesus leaves kind of the, this um, central region of, of, of the Jews um, and, and goes to this place, Caesarea Philippi, um, named, after, uh, named after the Caesar. At, uh, in one of my commentaries, I love this uh, parenthetical thing that it said that how um, – Naming a city a new or naming a city after an emperor, it pays to do little things like that, um, and this is certainly a wonderful um, place. And 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 we see a juxtaposition of um, so this the city named after an emperor, uh, which which uh, all Roman citizens except the Jews would have been expected to sacrifice to to this emperor as a god. Um, and uh, I mean, there's this. A uh, grotto under this this is this wonderful city. There's this grotto with this um, dedicated to this pagan god. Um, like this was a pagan city, uh, a, a city that would have worshipped many gods, and yet it, Jesus is doing something really interesting here in this context, saying, uh, "Who am I?" Um, of course, it's two different questions. Who, who do they say that I am? But then, based on everything you've heard. Because um, because this isn't quite the the mountain that it is uh, kind of this this peak that, that Mark has but it's still a peak where um, this is a turn where Jesus uh, tells them pretty soon afterwards about that he's got to return to Jerusalem um, for his fate of uh, on the cross. It's an interesting juxtaposition of of the gods and the living God and who Jesus is. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, I've, I've talked a number of times before about revelation and, and how important the doctrine of revelation is. And, and uh, we haven't talked about necessarily world religions, but uh, uh, Muhammad went and sat in a cave and um, testifies that the angel Gabriel came to him and, and this, this revelation uh, was revealed to him and, and, um, and, you know, it was scrawled down uh, in, in, um, in Buddhism. Uh, the the idea is to kind of seek enlightenment through sort of meditation and 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 transcendence, 
Um, and yet, in Christianity, we believe that there's a revelation from without. There are certain things that God has revealed to the whole world to be true. Uh, certain morality and, and just his existence and his glory. Uh, but to actually know God, um, you need a revelation directly from God. And, and we believe that, that the, the best revelation of God is in his son, Jesus Christ. And we, we see this here. Jesus says that it in clear words. Um, Jesus, uh, Simon does not realize that Jesus is the Messiah through intuition through meditation. He doesn't go sit in a cave um, and, and only drink water for 40 days. Um, he doesn't um, gaze upon the stars of the sky and, and come to this notion that Jesus is the Messiah that way. Um, but he learns that Jesus is the Messiah because he obeyed Jesus' command to be his disciple and because the Father revealed it to him. And and yet, uh, this juxtaposition and this, this wonderful praise that, that, uh, that Jesus gives him um, that he's the rock on which he's going to build his church. Uh, it's interesting that uh, one of the subsequent, immediately subsequent passages is uh, Peter not getting it. Um, and uh, Jesus having to say, Peter, like Satan has duped you. Uh, these are right next to each other. Th these passages. Uh, one moment, Peter's the rock. And then in verse 23, he's rebuked as the dupe of Satan. Um <laughs> I also want to mention uh, uh, this. This is one of the only references to the church um, in the Gospels. Uh, it's it's uh, we, we see it here and we yeah. see it one other time in the Book of Matthew um, when he re kind of repeats this um, keys of the kingdom uh, in I think Matthew eighteen, uh, and of course uh, th this would be uh, kind of my call is it like Jesus. Um, talked about uh, the, the kingdom early on. Like um, th this was a, a big theme of, of the book of Matthew of, of the kingdom. And like the kingdom isn't the, just this in just this invisible reality, but in fact that there is this um, assembly that's called out um, uh, that, that Jesus is calling us to. And uh, I want to keep my uh, comments brief this week. So I'll just wrap up there. Cause I want to hear what you guys have to say about this passage. Yeah. Andrew, um, I've always appreciated um, your, your, your thoughtful and uh, your thoughtful preaching. So I've been eager all week to hear um, what you have to say about this. This, um, this passage is, is, is frankly for most of my life and for most Protestants life, a, a massive stumbling block. So Andrew, help us make sense of this. <laughs> well, I said before we began, I, I am preaching on this passage this Sunday, but I was hoping more that this, uh, episode will prepare me to preach rather than coming with all my preaching prepared to bless you. So sorry, this is at your expense, dear <laughs> listener. Um, well, this will be but, hopefully mutually beneficial then. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not that I haven't thought of it at all, but yeah, I mean, so I assume you're saying it's, it's troublesome or a stumbling block because as a Protestant, you know, we're pointed to this passage as the, the root of the doctrine of there being a Pope kind of on, right. on whom is built the whole church and Peter kind of being the, the first type of that for, for people to follow. And yeah, I mean, certainly it's, it continues to be used that way by the, by the Roman Catholic church. I think, I mean, even, yeah, even someone with as, as high leanings as myself, I think that's a little bit of, of a stretch maybe, but I will say this. Um, one of the things that this, that this passage reminds me about, even as a, as a non-Roman, Catholic Christian is that the church 
from its earliest mention, like, um, like Christopher said, you know, this is one of the first times we get the word church uh, in, in the scriptures. It, it has to do with people, which we say a lot, you know, the church is people, it's not a building. And that's the easy Protestant thing to say, you know, the church is, is people, it's not a building. But it's also people, not doctrine, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not, a, not a creed, not a confession. Uh, buildings are important. Um, and doctrines and confessions and creeds are important, but ultimately uh, the church and what it's built on uh, are people and that that's what will endure into the kingdom of heaven and into ages of ages. And so um, for me, that it's important to realize that um, regardless of what, how you picture the offices of those people developing or whatever, um, Jesus looks at this, this man in the flesh, um, like Christopher said, this sort of uh, confused man at times, Simon and Peter, but he he is the one that Jesus points to to say, here is the church. Um, here's where it begins. Here's the, the kind of founding um, member of it, if you want to say it, as Jesus calls his church together in the New Testament. Um, and it's a person. It's not, uh, it's a person who believes something for sure, because he's just confessed it. But But Jesus doesn't say that statement you just made is Christianity. He says, this is the church and points to this, this person, Peter, who then represents, of course, the whole, the whole church around that. So for me, I mean, that's, that's one piece that maybe is a little bit of a tangent. I'm not, I'm not to say that that's like the absolute main point of this passage or something like that, but, but it is important. And I think would be a point of, um, of agreement or at least a starting point of conversation between um, Catholics who see that, uh, that person piece of the church uh, as, as central in, in the Pope and then Protestants who, do at least intuitively understand that the church is people. Yeah, that's yeah interesting. So, well, the, the uh, uh, so let me, let's, let's find the verse here. Uh, and I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. So that, that right there is, I think, um, especially for free church Protestants, um, that is who, who don't have any ecclesial structure, bishops, priests, deacons, um, uh, that, that particularly is a stumbling block. Um, so how, do, how, do, how should we read that? <laughs> yeah, oh, I mean, I guess... Oh, 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 Father, who will be preaching on this in a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't imagine anyone will raise their hand and ask me that mid-sermon, but maybe they will, so I should be prepared. Um, I mean, I guess I would say I, I have a high enough view of the church, um, like Christopher was just saying, like, as a, as a concrete manifestation in the world that the kingdom of god isn't just this kind of airy fairy tale that we point to yes. beyond the horizon yes but that but that that has real manifestations in the world now and that those are people so i would say that um this is this is uh, interestingly close to what the roman catholic doctrine of speaking extra ex cathedral would be i suppose but it's sort of a reverse version of it i would say that when someone is speaking uh, the absolute truth, the way that Peter is here and Jesus recognizes, um, they become they become the voice of God in the world. I mean, that's what we believe preaching is. That's what we believe the scriptures are. That when when truth is spoken in this sort of way, you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Um, that person, that voice, that presence in the world, which is very concrete, um, becomes the rock of of God's people becomes a, a, a very real manifestation in the real world of the kingdom of God. And well, so, the next verse um, really seems to uh, 
um, bestow that kind of authority, right? Um, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So I don't think that's going too far to say that, um, that that sort of uh, um, God's, God's authority on earth is, is bestowed. Um, it's, it's interesting to me, I, th I think a lot of um, Protestants and a lot of our Protestant listeners, we have a wide listenership from Catholic to Protestant, uh, don't, uh, don't believe if they were pressed on it that, that Christ came to establish a thing. That is to say, the visible church that built up over the subsequent centuries was, an, was a historical accident. It could have played out another way. And I think all three of us on this podcast believe that the Holy Spirit, uh, Christ came and the Holy Spirit came intentionally to build the church. Um, and that's why we are in an Episcopal, a Catholic church, um, because we believe that that was not an accident, but the intention of, of the triune God to build this thing. Um, but, but we see here, I will build my church. Um, that would seem to me to be um, an argument that, that Christ wasn't accidentally, he didn't accidentally have this movement that, that um, cropped up after he was executed by the Romans. But this is, this is all part of the, the mm. unfolding divine plan. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and as Americans, we're we're very we're big individualists. So um, where I would uh, love to kind of influence uh, American Christianity, if I am able to at all, it would be to that. that, um, that you're you're uh, an influencer. <laughs> yeah, check my social media. Yeah, um, would be that uh, we are not called into an individual uh, relationship with God, and and we we separate this out so much. You know that um, that that faith is about um, asking Jesus into your heart and uh, about um, having a personal relationship. Although we are called to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that that and that is a powerful thing. This, this is not in uh, just a. a an impersonal thing it is absolutely personal, but um, what we are baptized into and what we are called into is this, is this new kingdom, this new, um, this new assembly. Um, so that like the, uh, no Christian throughout history uh, would have, it would have not made any sense to say you could be a Christian um, apart from the church. That just well, would not have made sense. Like, uh, but I, I've, I've met and run into many people uh, who would say, I, you know, it's, I believe what I believe, and you know, it's kind of between me and God. Like, they have no use for the church. If you pair this passage with Romans from last week and uh, this week as well, uh, where Saint Paul uses the metaphor of the the olive tree, and then us as wild shoots who are being grafted in, um, there's just no room for kind of an individual understanding of a relationship with God in that metaphor that Paul's using in Romans. Um, we, we, are, we are being grafted in, made one with a, a larger and more ancient um, body of God's people. Um, it's just it's in, entirely antithetical to the metaphor that Paul is using as he's building this argument in Romans. As, as I don't well. mean individual. I mean personal. Like right. the fact that like God cares about us as, as, as individuals. God cares about Andrew and Kirk, and he cares right. about the small things. But all the New Peter. Testament metaphors are communal. Um, yep. Yeah. yeah. And it is interesting. I mean, he does speak. Yeah, of course, it's it's both and, especially since we're Anglicans. Like he is speaking to an individual. It's Peter. And he renames him as a, as a specific individual person. Um, but obviously, Peter holds a representative position throughout the Gospels. And then as he writes his letter, he's I mean, when Peter addresses his audience, it's to a people, a, a nation, a priesthood, a, a corporate reality. Um, to go back to what Kirk was saying, too, there's this sense of 
reaching back into the people of God that goes all the way back, not just in the Romans passage that this is paired with this week, but the Old Testament passages from Isaiah 51, um, in which it refers to, uh, well, I'll just read the one verse from it. Um, Jesus is just called Peter the Rock. Um, what the Old Testament lesson paired with this, this week is, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So there's already a precedent for calling someone the rock, namely Abraham in this case. And so in some sense, Peter becomes this new Abraham, this new father of a people. Um, and now it's not a genetic people. It's not in a one location sort of place, um, which, you know, if you extend that out, the connection with Peter and Rome becomes um, very symbolic in terms of this is global. This is the empire of the kingdom of God. It's not confined to one people or ethnicity, but this rock becomes a, a very corporate font of um, faith and of people, the same way that Abraham was, in the same way that we're bound to him by faith, by sharing the faith of Abraham. That becomes very clear in the later New Testament. So similarly, it's the, it's the statement of faith that Peter makes here in these verses that, that makes him the father of, of the church, of the faithful. That Isaiah passage is so good. Oh, I thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, Andrew. Um, that that is just a remarkable pairing um, with this passage as well. So let's let's get down to brass tacks. Is the confession uh, uh, the rock, or is Peter the rock? What is Jesus saying when he's saying, "On this rock I will build my church"? On Peter's confession, or on Peter? Right, because this is the grand divide, isn't it? Mostly, yeah. I would say that's mostly the grand divide, yeah. yeah. All right, Andrew. Fix it. You're fix all me? of okay. Yeah, fix everything <laughs> since the Reformation for sure. us. I guess, yeah, <laughs> if you're asking me, well, I, I would say something similar to what I, what I said a couple minutes ago, that um, it is Peter speaking this truth. So it is not an abstracted confession of faith that becomes the rock, as if you could airdrop that into some mm. place, and that's just what the church is. It is a person. Um, but it is a person with this confession and this faith um, living in them. So I would, I mean, I tend to think that Jesus means what he says. And what he says here is, Peter, you are the rock. And on this rock, you, Peter, I will build my church. Um, so it is a person. It's, it's Peter to whom he's speaking. But it is very significant that it's Peter to whom he's speaking immediately after he makes this statement about who Jesus is. Andrew, no one so gently and kindly smiles and inserts the knife as you do. <laughs> I tend to believe <laughs> Jesus means what he says. Yes, no, no, we say that a lot too, yes. <laughs> um, when Jesus well, says hard things, he, he means them, even if it makes us squirm, yeah. And it's a false dichotomy right. to say yeah. that, uh, th that Jesus is saying either uh, the church is just a set of doctrines, um, you know, this faith that he, that this, this confession, that it's either that or the, the modern papacy. Um, you know, to, to, to say that Peter is the rock, I mean, it's hard to read the beginning of Acts and not see Peter as, as this foundation of the church. It is on the day of Pentecost. Who preaches? Peter. Um, and we, and we see kind of the, the first third or so of, of the book of Acts, um, Peter features just, it's, it's kind of, he's the main character. 
Um, and, and so certainly uh, he is the foundation um, because the church is like Andrew said, the church is people and, and um, like this uh, does, doesn't work apart from uh, Peter's work in, in the, in the book of Acts. However, does that mean that we have this um, everlasting um, first among equals that can make doctrine? Um, that is, is, is something entirely different to say that um, this, this uh, seat uh, Peter's seat, um, the Bishop of Rome, that uh, though it uh, it had pre- preeminence, it was seat like all the, the ancient, you know, the, the Bishop of, of Jerusalem and Antioch and Alexandria, like among these bishops, the Bishop of Rome ha- had a special place. He, you know, Papa, um, but does that mean that, that he can um, sit ex cathedra and make doctrine? Um, uh, it, does that mean that there is this magisterium um, that the church has that that um, can can uh, that the pope can single handedly for generation after generation um, do this? Uh, like we would all say no, um, and and so to say that it's it's this or that um, uh, I think would be inaccurate. Yeah, but uh, then, so we that that was a hard word for maybe our Catholic listeners, but I, I would say the the hard word for our, our Protestant listeners is this is a strong argument for for authority, mm-hmm. and that. Um, Jesus gives uh, authority to to teach and to forgive sins, um, which boy, that's something that it will make a, your Baptist friend scorn very quickly. That Jesus gives um, uh, his his priests the authority to forgive sins. I mean, it's right there. You can't you you can't get around it. I think about it's the other passage that I've heard. Um, I've heard wait, even in our circles, in Anglican circles, um, John twenty. I've heard people tap dance around that thing um, so many times, and I'll, I'll, I'll pull that up as well. Um, so you have it in a synoptic gospel here, Matthew, it's in Mark as well. And then you have it um, in John 20, um, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father sent me, I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. Um, it's just hard to get around the fact that Jesus does bequeath this, as you th- said, Andrew, authority to be um, kind of God's placeholder in, in some crucial ways. It's, yeah, uh, words I mean, it's an interesting thing. There. How, how authority is dealt with in Christian tradition is, I mean, it becomes this funny circular thing, which I don't think circular is bad. I think all Good thinking is circular. It just depends how big your circle is. Very G.K. Chesterton thing to say, I guess. But <laughs> the so the way so for instance, bracket the church for a moment. When we ask about governmental authority, clearly commanded in the New Testament scriptures to submit to the emperor, to the king, to whoever the the governmental authority is as an agent of God. And yet the church has always said that uh, expires when the governmental authority uh, transgresses its you know, it's God-given right to exercise that authority. And so it's a circular thing. Like, how do you know when that is? <laughs> um, likewise, we say, you know, Peter has authority uh, so long as he's proclaiming the word of God, which is what happens in this passage. He says, mm-hmm. you are the Christ and says, Jesus says, okay, you're the rock. You get to, <laughs> you get to have the keys of the kingdom. And then the next verses, Peter <laughs> says, you shouldn't go to the cross. And Jesus says, uh, actually, you're Satan. <laughs> what, like, what is that? So it becomes a circular thing where there is never a single person, back to Christopher's earlier point, there's never a single person 
dictating the doctrines of the church. It's always a corporate discernment on how we teach and a corporate accountability for, for those authoritative figures. But on the, on the other hand, there are always spokesmen and always authorities. So, so this might be why we would say, we would argue that the church at its best and holiest and most faithful to the Holy Spirit has made decisions as in councils together, coming together, meeting, submitting to each other, um, rather than grand so. authoritative smackdowns. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> Certainly. And, and, uh, you know, when Andrew mentioned, um, Peter, um, uh, like he's human. So like, he's wrong. Sometimes he's right. Sometimes he's wrong. Sometimes we don't want to, we don't want to beat him down too much, but we also don't want to build him up so that he's never wrong. And, and we see that in Galatians where, um, Peter, or where I'm sorry, Paul has to rebuke Peter. Um, this is, this is like, cause we don't want to have like Pentecost as the dividing line where it's like, well, before Pentecost, uh, you know, Peter was human, but then once the Holy spirit came, like he was superhuman and was never, you know, wrong. But no, like there's, you know, he's human. And, and um, I, when I think of, when I think of authority, I always think of, of Jesus saying, um, like the Gentiles like to lord their authority over others. Not so with you. That's yeah, yeah. that's exactly what I was just going to say. Insofar as Peter is a figure, for the authoritative voice of the church, whether that takes a form of a pope or not, we can talk about that. But uh, insofar as Peter is that figure, I think his character in the New Testament matters quite a bit. And so Peter, although he's very bold and very outspoken, and he's the one that talks immediately on Pentecost, he's also fairly submissive. He submits to Paul when he's confronted in, in Galatia. He's at the Jerusalem Council, the most important meeting in the New Testament. He bears witness Mm-hmm. to what God is doing and, and has the most important testimony to make in that council. And yet he submits to James as James makes the pronouncement on behalf of the, of the, on behalf of that council. And then later in his first letter, when Peter writes, it's interesting in chapter two. So Jesus in this passage in Matthew has just called Peter the rock. Um, and that becomes very important for the, for the church thereafter. But Peter in his first letter, when Peter talks about rocks and uses rock, Petra type language. Peter insists that Jesus is the rock. Um, Peter says that Jesus is this living stone rejected by men, um, but by God chosen and precious and on him, everything is built. Um, He is the stone laid in Zion, the cornerstone um, on, on which everything depends. So Peter actually, even in that as the rock, and he claims his own name, Peter, which just means rock thereafter. He here says that Jesus is actually the stone. He's, he's the one that... that and that is, um, that is a, uh, a very Christ-like um, model of authority, which is Jesus saying, I, I came to serve, not to be served, right? The way up is down. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, be a servant of all, um, which is evidently through the Holy Spirit, what Peter does grasp as... And the way up being down, I mean, it's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, Peter is crucified upside down, of course, according to tradition, right? So someone who very much understands the way up is down. Yeah. Andrew, you said something earlier that that sparked a thought of mine. You talked about um, uh, the authority of, of, of preaching is, is the word uh, something to that effect of, of when you are, you and I, when you or I stand up and preach, um, uh, there's an authority there, but it is, it's like this, uh, authority in so much as we are preaching Jesus and, and his gospel. Uh, we've been exploring Trinitarian themes uh, since Trinity Sunday, and we kind of highlight them when, when they come up. And I think certainly preaching, 
is uh, is is one of those examples when we think of when I think of the Trinity, uh, because I don't know what your experience is like preaching, Andrew, but uh, my you know this is something that the Holy Spirit uh, works in us as we prepare. But as we preach, the whole, it's the Holy Spirit that works in hearts to kind of open the eyes and ears of the heart so that they um, could hear the word. Uh, um, that's, that's something that, uh, that I believe down to my being. And, and it, the interesting manifestation of that is uh, visiting with people after the service, uh, kind of what they heard of the sermon. Mm-hmm. It may not be a main point that I had, that, that kind of God was speaking to them in a very particular way, not in a way that I was conscious of, of a point that I was consciously making. But I was listening to, uh, I've mentioned Tim Keller, uh, a good Presbyterian um, and a wonderful um, gospeler. Uh, I listened to a sermon that I'd never thought of this before, um, but he pointed to uh, the language that we see in um, some of the letters, certainly of Paul, on how um, when we preach, uh, it, sometimes it is Christ who is preaching. It's Christ's words that, that they hear. Uh, and, and Paul writes this, that like you heard the word of Christ, like kind of like the language he uses is like you heard from him. Like, so when I preach, you hear Christ. And so that's, that's an interesting thing that co- comes out when we think of preaching um, that we may not think about, that when we preach Christ, they're actually hearing Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's for someone that has a kind of um, whatever you want to call it, more Anglo-Catholic or, or just a more historic understanding of the, the continuity of the church. Um, I mean, it's a, a terrifying thing to say or suggest, but that's actually the exact same thing that we think the scriptures are, right? And these are the words of men um, become the word of God. And mm. terrifyingly, we think that is actually at moments what preaching is insofar as it repeats the scriptures and insofar as the scriptures repeat the word of God, who is Jesus, ultimately, um, it, it is the very word of God pronounced into the world. Which is, yeah, like I said, a, a terrifying, fearful thing to claim that. Um, but it is what the church has always done. Yeah, well said. Well said. Gentlemen, I think that was a very fruitful discussion. Should we move on to our, th- our theology segment? Let's do it. All right, for our theology segment, we want to introduce uh, today a, um, a, a concept um, called Anglo-Catholicism. And uh, we brought on my favorite Anglo-Catholic that I know. Um, and like all good Anglicans, squirms at being pinned down in almost anything. So, <laughs> um, and he can explain, explain why uh, he, he might define it a little differently. But Andrew, I'd just like to begin by asking you, um, what is Anglo-Catholic theology? worship and practice look like? And where does that come from? Oh, gosh. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm probably the worst representative Anglo-Catholic you could, you could find. But yes, I'm probably the closest friend you have that said <laughs> would represent this view. And I love being here talking to friends. Um, so I, I do, I buck at the, the label Anglo-Catholic, um, partly because it just, for instance, like the term conservative carries with it a lot of, you know, quote, policy baggage that I wouldn't sure. necessarily adhere to. Um, and also because most people who identify as Anglo-Catholic would not want me as their representative. And so I don't want to do a disservice <laughs> to, that, to that community. That is until the moment they met you, sir. That could be. But anyway, yeah. go on. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So for me to be, to be Catholicly minded or quote high church or these things that suggest Anglo-Catholicism um, and what that would have meant historically in its earliest use of that phrase. Um, you, you asked what it means theologically and liturgically and practically. Is that what you said? Yeah. 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 I mean, so I think for me, most importantly, if you ask me specifically what the Catholic aspect of being Anglican or really what the Catholic aspect of being Christian means, because any Christian who confesses the, the ancient creeds of Nicaea, the apostles, will, will confess faith in a, a church Catholic. What that means for me and emphasizing it in Anglo- in the Anglican world, Anglo-Catholic world, um, has to do with continuity. Um, so in the world that our story doesn't have breaks in it. Mm. Um, and that means back through the New Testament, we are the same church doing the same stuff. Um, and that means even institutionally, there's continuity. It's a messy continuity for sure, like any families, but, uh, but it is the same family with the same family history the same um, players, that's, but that's a real thing um, and something that I honor, not just kind of accidents of history or things to be um, run away from, but, but things that are God's, God's gifts to the church. It goes back through the New Testament, back to Jesus, but also far beyond that. I mean, we, we would say there has been a church, there has been a people of God since Adam, since creation. Um, God has had, has had a people and that's, that's us. We're part of that with all of the history, all of the um, stuff that goes along with that. So for me, that's the most important piece of it is acknowledging and honoring the fact that we are part of that global um, universal Catholic people that exists all the way back um, into God's earliest intentions. And that has ramifications theologically, certainly ramifications liturgically, ramifications practically. Um, yeah, so uh, the Church of England uh, broke from Rome in uh, the 50s and 30s and 40s, and, and had largely probably um, um, kind of a Protestant face, we would say, for the first 200, 300 years, right? Um, and uh, you used this word earlier, tractarian. Um, there's a, there's, there are a bunch of fascinating, God-haunted, interesting thinkers that meet up together in Oxford in the 1830s. Uh, John Henry Newman, John Keeble, um, Edward E.B. Pusey, um, and, uh, and they write a bunch of tracts, 90 of them to be specific, um, and, uh, and they create kind of a, a Catholic revival in the Church of England that it's hard for us to picture now uh, how rapidly, but it spread quite rapidly, and um, so that's kind of its origins, and it helped, it helped um, English Protestants think of themselves for the first time ever the way you just described, that is a, a, um, a, a continuity stretching all the way back 
um, not defined by what they're protesting, but defined by the ancient creeds and apostolic witness that unites us all, and that that's the way that our faith should be animated. Um, so I, I like the way you frame that. I love that. So how does that play itself out then? Um, maybe how would your theology maybe dif differ from an evangelical Anglican? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it would depend on, on what we were talking. I, I could also just as happily identify as, as an evangelical in the classical sense in the terms of the magisterial reformers. I can, I can agree with the vast, vast majority of what a Luther or a Calvin would say. Um, so, not... so, and obviously to say, um, uh, in what ways do you differ from an evangelical, you'd have to kind of make some assumptions about yeah. what the evangelical uh, believes. So, so let's just ask, um, in what ways would you stand out among your peers in, in the diocese, which is... Um, Grant, granting that all these distinctions are going to be crude and require, yeah. require caveats, but just painting yeah. in broad strokes. You're a fairly evangelical diocese. Um, in what ways do you stand out? Yeah. Um... I mean, I, I suppose from it, it is a default posture of like, positive reception of tradition rather than skeptical or resistant reception. That's a good way so that's, of putting that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, which doesn't mean that I accept everything from the tradition. And of course, um, more resistant people accept plenty of the tradition, but it, it privileges the tradition first. So the default assumption is yes to everything that came before and then you question it rather than beginning from a place of saying, well, we're starting from scratch. What can we use from the past? To me, that that's like anathema kind of thinking. That's a technical word. So I don't really mean anathema, but you know, that's, I would never want to think of myself or of the church as starting from scratch and then looking to the past as a toolbox of pragmatic, pragmatic things that we can use, but rather we are that church from the past and we continue to question ourselves the way the church has always done. Which so the boost. way this would play itself out in practice, for example, um, Anglo-Catholics, more so than evangelical Anglicans, will often use pre-reformational um, practices. For example, the invocation of saints or uh, rosaries or the Ave Maria. Um, so do you mind uh, wading into a couple of minefields with me? Can I ask you a couple of questions about those things? Because Andrew, sure. you, you above anyone else that I've talked to have helped me think more charitably about some of those practices to which I maybe had a romophobic reaction. <laughs> um, you, you, you really have helped me in, in our conversations around these things. Um, let's start. I had written up, written up a list here. Um, prayers for the dead, which many Anglicans would actually be surpr surprised. We've always had that in our prayer books. So why should we not be ashamed to pray for the dead? So my, my answer to that is like, a, it's just a theological answer. It doesn't have to do with identifying as Anglo-Catholic or, sure. or whatever else. It's just a positive theological answer. So the reason why we pray for the dead is because there are no dead in Christ. And we Amen. pray for each other all the time in the church. And so as you go on living, you go on growing deeper into the infinite depth of who God is and his love and life. And so that doesn't end with death. And we want our brothers and sisters who've gone on before us into the fullness of the kingdom of God to continue to grow in joy and love. And so we pray for, for them to do that. And that's, that's my answer. The, the Roman answer has to do with much later doctrines of purgatory and that sort of thing that I wouldn't subscribe to. Um, but, but regardless, we all Christians should agree that there are no dead in Christ. And so we, we pray for those who have fallen asleep because they're still our brothers and sisters. Oh my gosh. So, so what well aren't said. we praying for? So, um, 
I had someone who's like, why do we pray for the dead? Um, and, and their assumption was that we were somehow praying that, you know, that they'd be released from purgatory. What would you say a little bit more about what we aren't praying for when we pray for the dead? Um, or is it that, is it that <laughs> simple that, that like, because we don't believe in purgatory, that's not part of our prayer. That, that's what, that's how I would personally yeah. answer. It. Okay. Like, that's just not a thing that exists. So I don't pray about it. <laughs> but <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, I, I'll say this, maybe this is as far as I would lean in the, in the Roman Catholic or quote purgatory direction. Um, we don't really know like how time works right. philosophically. Yeah. So to, to pray for God to have mercy on someone um, in, a, in a, an abstract or nebulous way is something I'm very comfortable doing. Saying, okay, from, from our perspective, time, earthly time, finite time is over for this person. And so there were things that cannot be undone. There were decisions made. There were actions and um, et cetera. But, you know, our, our ability to perceive those things as human beings, et cetera, is, is finite. It is limited. And so um, to simply pray that God would receive that person, would receive his creation as a whole into the arms of his mercy in whatever that means to an mm -hmm. infinitely merciful God, I'm, I'm comfortable doing. I probably wouldn't go beyond that because I don't know what I'm talking about. Beyond right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, one of the forms from the 79 prayer book, um, we, we pray for all that those who have died, the leader says. Do you guys remember what the response is? That they may have a place in your eternal kingdom, hmm. which, which I think is, is, a, is a great thing yeah. to pray and, and kind of um, consistent with what Andrew's kind of talked about. All right, so let's ratchet up the scale now. All right, <laughs> invocation of saints or a pronobis. Can we do this? Oh, gosh. We ask for saints to pray for us. We do all the time. I ask you to pray for me regularly. My brother, Kirk, you're a saint, and I, I ask you to pray for me. So, of course, we can. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I mean, you get right to it. Um, yeah. yeah. This was the conversation that you, I remember you and I had uh, in a traffic jam in the, on the Autobahn in Germany. <laughs> I'm like, well, I got Andrew captive here, so I'm just going to like throw everything at him. Yeah, no, that's that's the the best argument. I um actually, in the face of it, put that simply, Andrew, um, all of my Protestant biases um, become kind of sputtering incoherence. Of uh, every every everything that I had kind of prepared, uh, kind of washes away. Okay, so next, Hail Maria, <laughs> Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Um, first of all, whose mouth does that come out of in the scriptures? Uh. Is that Gabriel or is I, that? I believe that's Gabriel, right? That's Gabriel kind of um, greets her with a, with, with a greeting, right? Um, but then, Some then come the from next, Elizabeth, I can't bless, The next is Elizabeth, right? Blessed art, okay. art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, right. Jesus. And then comes the real for me stumbling block. And Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. You sort of made the case previously. Um, can we as Anglicans with, um, with full hearts pray the Ave Maria? Can we as Anglicans? Um, well, okay. Can we, can we, can, may I, Andrew? <laughs> yeah. So that is a tricky question, right? So if, if you consider yourself like I do, um, a, a Catholic Christian that comes from the English trajectory of, of what that means, um, I submit to the, my, my family's discernment of these questions over time and the articles of religion. And since the Reformation, we've been very careful about the way we approach saints because there were abuses and kind of bad confusions made in 
Um, are we worshiping them? Are we praying to them? Are we asking them to pray for us? That became so convoluted and so unhelpful um, for the church that we said, you know, we don't need it, and so let's bracket it and not do it at all. And I'm, I'm okay with the fact that the church made that decision at that time. Um, but, uh, and so I submit to that because that's still sort of officially what, what governs me. And so as I'm a priest, as I speak for the church, that's, that's the position that I speak for because I don't speak for my own authority. However, would I be okay with the church coming to the conclusion that we could ask Mary to intercede for us? I would be comfortable with that. And so kind of as an individual in private, would I, would I pray to, would I ask Mary to pray for me? And have I? Yes, definitely. Do I encourage people to do that as their pastor? I do not, um, as, a, as a kind of typical, typical practice. But sure, and, and my question would, or my, my response to that would be similar to what I said um, tersely at the beginning. I, I would gladly ask you, Kirk, to pray for me, a sinner, now and at the hour of my death. Um, and so because we don't believe that there are dead in Christ, I'm asking another living member of the church um, who has, I, I think, an incontrovertible pride of place, um, St. Mary does, uh, to pray for me, um, given her experience, given her um, wisdom and what she saw of the world and of her son, um, I, I would I would gladly trust her to pray for for me as a sinner. Whether or not she can hear me for sure as clearly as you can, that I don't know. I mean, that's certainly more nebulous. We're given pictures of a, a cloud of saints that surrounds us and seemingly can see and hear us. At least that's the image given to us in, in Hebrews. It wouldn't be a very meaningful image given if they couldn't see and hear us. So I have some sense that probably the saints do continue to participate in the life of the church, um, even here on, on earth, but I, I couldn't be terribly certain about how exactly that works. Well, we get a picture of that in Revelation, right? Where sort of um, uh, Jesus peels back the thin illusion of our present reality and shows St. John the Divine what's actually happening, right? And so then in Holy Communion, we are not only united with our Lord, but with the body of all faithful throughout space and time, right? So um, I, I, I find that very powerful. Sure, we join our voices with angels and dark angels and all the rest of the saints. Yeah, yeah, and that's coming from um, uh, Isaiah 6 as we get this glimpse into heaven and we get, we get a, an idea of what's going on there, um, that they are singing, holy, holy, holy Lord, um, and to join them is, is a really cool thing. Uh, I, I sense that we are, we are approaching approaching the end end of uh, our time together. Uh, so Andrew, I, I mean, I, I want to ask a fairly broad question. You can go kind of anywhere anywhere you want with it. Um, uh, we've asked very specifically, or Kirk has about um, <laughs> Mar Mary and and <laughs> prayers for the dead. But I'm I'm just curious. Um, uh, what would you say to people? Um, who, who aren't Roman Catholic, um, whether they're Anglican, Baptist, Presbyterian, um, what are some aspects uh, you've, and this is general, like uh, you can't speak specifically, but like you've observed their pieties, you've been a part of those churches uh, of, of Presbyterian, and what are, are some aspects of, of um, kind of the ancient churches or, or the church universal um, throughout the ages what are some aspects of the church's piety that are missing that you would really encourage um, our listeners who may not um, do these things daily yes, or weekly? Such what, a what great parts, question. What are some parts of our piety that, that we need to kind of um, 
consider and or bring back? Yeah, that's a great question. I love having those those conversations um, as a spiritual director or just as a as a pastor. Yeah. Um, well, so first let me say, I mean, it's, it's funny. I like I said, I served a very high kind of church where I was, I was able to act very Catholic, and now I serve a very low church where um, you know things are are more casual. I uh, the expression that our faith takes is, I, I think one of the lovely things about being a Christian is that can take broad forms because God connects with us in different ways. Um, and um, the heart of what I believe doesn't change even when the worship style changes or, or whatever. And so I don't worship a worship style. I mean, we worship, worship God. But that said, I think my immediate response to that question and probably the most important one I would offer is to say what I would hope Protestant Christians might come to learn from the historic church or to, to quote, reclaim, aren't specific practices or things that we might draw out of that toolbox to use as their masters. Um, but what we might learn is a far bigger posture of submission. Um, but that was something that the church understood as, as important through the ages. And I don't just mean submission to some kind of hierarchical authority, but submission to the body, to the tradition, to the family history that we have, um, and to learn from it, so that it isn't that we sit here with, with our Bibles alone and then look back to the past and say, oh, can I learn a new way to pray and then rip that into the present, um, but rather we picture ourselves as receiving all of those things as gifts and as being taught by the church how to pray, how to worship, uh, etc. cetera. Um, so when you picture it that way, you can look back to the whole swath of, of church history and say, um, what, what is there? What is the church offering me with, with open hands that I might receive? Um, and I think a lot of Protestant Christians have done that. So the praying the hours is a historic thing that goes all the way back through the church to pray at morning and noonday and evening. It goes all the way back to the Jewish church, all the way back to as long as we can remember there being um, afternoon and evening sacrifices, which is time immemorial. So to pray on those hours, um, to offer our prayers as incense and sacrifice to God, um, and to picture that as being in continuity with the church, not just personal, individual devotion time, but, but something that we do with the whole people of God. I mean, for me, that would be one really important way to reframe prayer as a whole that, that Protestants might learn from the, from the Catholic tradition. Um, I think an appreciation for the saints and, uh, and for the church's kind of whatever you want to call it, quote, canonical recognition of certain heroes of the faith uh, could be a helpful thing to, to learn from, whether or not you, you land on that, the place of asking them to pray for you or not. Certainly learning from their lives and from what the church holds, holds forward as important there um, would be big. I don't know. Yeah, there are other things that I would find. I mean, the, the most obvious things I think that people run into are, are kind of what happens in Sunday or corporate worship. So do you learn to appreciate incense investments and whatever? Um, I, I certainly think that those things are, are important ways of creating um, space for worship that, that invokes the mystery and grandeur of God. But also, again, just very tangibly, historically, those things reach back. So we wear the vestments we wear because they tie, they're Roman clothes, they're Roman clothing that tie us back to that moment in history when God became incarnate in a Roman world where people wore Roman clothes and did something at the apex of history and the cross and resurrection of Jesus that we continue to bind ourselves to now, even in the silly clothes that we wear when we mm -hmm. worship. Um, so those sorts of things that, 
aren't just uh, discrete elements that we appreciate in practice, but that we tie them to history and to the global church as we receive them. I don't know, are there things that come to your minds? I don't know what else. That is, uh, Andrew, that is such a good answer. I, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It's <laughs> so good. So, so good. Happy to be here. Well, uh, shall we close in prayer? Let's close in prayer. Let your continual mercy, O Lord, cleanse and defend your church. And because it cannot continue in safety without your help, protect and govern it always by your goodness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord. And by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Andrew, thank you so much. Absolutely. This was fun. Glad to be here. I, this is my uh, first podcast with people in a very long time. So Very exciting. Christopher, fun. next week. Next week.